zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Under the Rainbow, released July 31st, 1981. It was written by Pat McCormick, Harry Hurwitz, Martin Smith, Pat Bradley, and Fred Bauer, based on a story by Bauer and Bradley, directed by Steve Rash, and released by Warner Brothers. Frank L. Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was first published in May of 1900 and was quickly adapted into a Broadway musical in 1902, which stripped Wonderful from the title. The novel is actually the first in a series of 14 books written after the rousing success of the first novel and musical. The first book was adapted to film several times before the celebrated 1939 version, including a 1925 film with Oliver Hardy as the Tin Man. Hmm. In 1938, the rights to the novel were purchased by MGM. The sequences involving little-person actors playing the munchkins were saved till the end of production, and each actor was paid $125 a week for their work, the equivalent of $2,420 a week today for every single one of those people. That's, not not just the decent. featured yeah. ones. Yeah, that's, that's good pay. 100 individual costumes were designed for the little-person cast of around 120 to 126 actors who were booked three to a bed at the real-life Culver Hotel and instructed to sleep across the width of the mattress to maximize space. Wow. Well, because okay, that's a... <laughs> they don't, they're not the length of the mattress, no, I... so they rotated them 90 degrees. Oh, okay. Still terrible because you're yeah. sleeping with two strangers in the same bed. Yeah. You wouldn't do that to any other actors for this movie. Rumors have swirled since the film's production about the little person actors wreaking havoc at the hotel, and while they may have had a good time, there is little truth to the tales of munchkins swinging from the lobby's chandeliers as has been widely reported. It's possible these stories stem from the more confirmable tale that 11 dwarf actors were hired to stand above the marquee during the premiere of Disney's Pinocchio and wound up drunk and naked, shouting <laughs> obscenities at the crowd below. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. They were all dressed as Pinocchio, wearing Pinocchio masks, oh. and they were overheating up there. So someone from Disney gave them a little bit of food and a lot of beer to calm them down, and they got wasted. <laughs> Eventually, the police were called, and supposedly the elusive drunks had to be bagged up in pillowcases to be carried down from oh, the marquee. Oh lord, oh my god. But this was for Pinocchio, and not right. Snow White. Why are there seven Pinocchios? I don't know. There were 11 Pinocchios. <laughs> oh, 11 Pinocchios. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe because he's 11 years old? I don't know. One of the lead Munchkin actors from the 1939 Wizard of Oz, Jerry Marin, has said in interviews that he had never seen another little person before arriving at the Culver Hotel. The hotel still exists and is now an historic landmark in Culver City, still located directly across the street from Culver City Studios. I've mentioned in the past on the show that I worked on A&E's The Beast with Patrick Swayze and some of our post work went through Culver City Studios, so I know this location well, and the exteriors of the studio and the hotel play themselves in the film. The hotel was built by Harry Culver, who also founded the city, but was later purchased by Charlie Chaplin, who, according to legend, lost it in a poker game to John Wayne, who kept it for a while before donating it to the YMCA. 
Over the years of its operation, Buster Keaton, Clark Gable, and Greta Garbo were all said to keep apartments in the building. And by the way, Mr. Culver still operated the hotel during the time that this film is set to take place. So the manager and the assistant manager are working directly for Mr. Culver. The hotel has since been restored to its former glory and played host to a reunion of seven surviving Munchkin actors in 1997. After the success of their earlier film, The Buddy Holly Story, producer Ed Cohen, writer-producer Fred Bauer, and director Steve Rash struck a three-picture deal with Orion, starting with a starring role for Chevy Chase, fresh off his appearance in Orion's Caddyshack. The story came from producer Bauer and was developed by writer Pat Bradley, but Orion hired Pat McCormick, Harry Hurwitz, and Martin Smith to compose the script. It has been reported that Chevy Chase was struggling with the sudden death of his best friend, Caddyshack writer Douglas Kenny, and was nearly replaced with Airplane's Robert Hayes, but Chase has denied that it affected his work. Carrie Fisher reportedly collapsed on set and was hospitalized due to flu and exhaustion, which is popular Hollywood speak for drugs. <laughs> An actor strike and complete lack of acting experience on the part of most of the cast caused several production delays. The final product was nominated for two Razzies for Worst Score and Supporting Actor for Billy Barty, and the title landed in Rolling Stone's Big Bucks Big Losers article after turning $20 million of budget into $18 million in box office, which doesn't seem like a big loser to me. Yeah. But but also, to, to single out Billy Barty in this... Cat. He's pretty bad in it, though, and he's good in other things. Yeah, I know, but it's just like everyone's bad in this i think i think his performance stands out because he's clearly annoyed at being there mm. and he's supposed to be speaking in a german accent and that's not fair because yeah. no one else is speaking in an accent that they don't have to use in this movie or that they don't already have <laughs> yeah we open on a dirt road on a foggy morning a truck rattles down the road to a dilapidated encampment there's a ratty old building and a bunch of tents out front and it's bustling with people Based on the cars and the outfits, it looks like we're in the 30s. Also based on my knowledge of when The Wizard of Oz was made. <laughs> oh, and also based on a title that just showed up that says it's 1938. A little person wakes up in a tent out front and heads into the U.S. post office to ask if he's gotten a letter from Hollywood. Face it, little fella. Your dreams are just too big. Well, let me tell you something, Delbert, and I want you to remember where you heard it. There's no dream too big and no dreamer too small. Well, at this point, I was wondering why they were taking such great lengths to avoid showing the face of the guy who's talking to behind the counter. Yeah. <laughs> I also wonder why this beginning isn't in sepia tone. Yeah. And the ending isn't in sepia tone. Oh, God. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been... It, it does look desaturated. It's browner, but it's not full sepia it, tone. It's not. I feel like they just did it slightly wrong like i actually think the intent was there because it's not the same coloring as the rest of the film i think orion was scared to do it in sepia tone because they thought people would leave immediately if the whole movie wasn't going to be in color and they oh, didn't know okay <laughs> there's a radio positioned in the center of the room and it's broadcasting an address from president fdr just as the speech gets going the signal fades out and rollo the little person from the tent offers to check it out he climbs a pile of junk leaned against the outside of the building to reach the roof a sign has blown down and snagged the aerial on its way. Just as Rollo is getting it connected, a car pulls into the lot, and the driver is waving a hat out the window and shouting. Rollo is distracted enough to fall off the roof and tumble down onto the pile of junk. Inside, the president's address resumes, because he actually got the wire connected. Right. Because he's literally just hooking it onto the tin roof of the building. Mm-hmm. Which is smart. Yeah. 
They're using the whole roof as an antenna. We cut to Nazi headquarters and specifically the desk of Adolf Hitler himself with a giant swastika flag behind him. He too is listening to the president's address. He's visited by a pair of officers and a dwarf agent named Otto wearing a Hitler mustache and a monocle. He's played by Billy Barty. He tells Hitler that Japan wants a map of the American defenses and he will be meeting with a Japanese agent to hand it over soon somewhere in California. Otto asks Hitler how he will know the agent when he sees him and Hitler tells him the passphrase. The pearl is in the river. The pearl is in the river. Isn't a passphrase typically something that a person might say but is unlikely to? It wouldn't just be a random phrase like this. Well, it's also usually accompanied by a follow-up phrase. Right, yeah. I, I also wonder why this exchange would happen in California when he is currently in Germany and the person he is exchanging with is a Japanese spy. And I'm yeah. like, feels like... He can come here or there would, go there. Yeah, there'd be, or there'd be a closer place in between you two that would make more sense rather than, than going all flying the way over to California. Oceans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rather, rather than flying to a country that is not, at this point, not hostile, but but in contention. Right. Like, uh, because we'll learn later that the, the Japanese spy was at least already somewhere in Asia. Right, yeah. Uh, pretty recently. So... Yeah, I guess just to, I mean, I guess I guess we could assume that the spy is operating in California. Yeah. You will look for a Japanese man in a white suit. How will he know me? He will look for a man your size. Otto is checking his pockets for something as Hitler approaches him. When another officer shouts Heil Hitler, Otto swings his arm up to salute and smashes Hitler's nuts. Or nut, I guess. We cut to the Queen Mary as passengers wave from the deck with streamers in their hands. We see a man dressed in black moving against the stream of people coming off the boat. He's stopped by an employee of the cruise line, but explains that he's here looking for Inspector Roy Collins, working for the Duke and Duchess of Luchow. Because this is a VHS transfer that we're watching, we can only tell that it's Chevy Chase from his voice so far. Fortunately for him, the inspector is right here. Another suspicious gentleman tries to follow Chevy and the inspector, but is stopped again by the cruise employee. It sounds from their conversation like Chevy is here to relieve Inspector Collins as the Duke's private security. Collins is carrying the Duchess's dog, Strudel, but hands it off to his replacement. Collins throws a shave and a haircut knock at the door to the royal suite and opens the door for Chevy to enter, but waits outside. Chevy is suddenly face to face with Duke Ferdinand of Luchow. He introduces himself as Secret Service Agent Bruce Thorpe. He shows a badge to the suspicious Duke. Once he's had a good look at it, the Duke removes a large fake beard, relieved. He introduces Thorpe to the Duchess. She asks if the dog he's carrying is his. Oh, no, ma'am, I believe it's yours. My strudel? The suspicious guy who was turned away on the ramp to the boat is suddenly climbing a rope outside a porthole of the royal suite with a gun in his mouth. I, I assume that this questioning of the dog is in a response to this dog already having been replaced right at this point in the movie but i think at this point we think she's just crazy right there's a loud knock at the door and the duke mistakes it for gunfire and dives to the floor strudel freaks out as well thorpe tries to assure the duke that he will encounter no such violence on american soil thorpe instructs a ship employee to close the portholes and collect their bags for departure when he closes a window on the spy's face, we hear the man scream and fall into the ocean. We cut to a palatial estate at the end of a dirt driveway as a couple are entering their mansion. 
Suddenly, the doorframe of the mansion is filled with an enormous human head. And we realize we're looking at a matte painting of a house, and the camera is filming people on a stage behind it. The enormous face asks how it looks, and the woman behind the camera is blown away by the effect. We will learn that she is Annie Clark, being played by Carrie Fisher here. It's amazing! It looks just like the sketches! As we zoom out of the matte painting, we see that it's being held up at probably a 10 degree angle on two C-stands, which I don't think is how you would mount a matte painting per se. Maybe in the 30s. Oh, never mind. I just looked into it and these collapsible C-stands didn't exist in the 30s. <laughs> Bizarrely, the enormous human head, who it turns out is just a person named Louis or Louis, suggests that the matte painting cost $5,000 but probably saved him 100 So is the joke that the building would have cost 4900 to make? Or is he saying that the building only would have cost 100 to make? I don't even get the I, joke. I, I, I don't get... No, I assumed, I assumed if he had to build what was painted there, it would have cost him $100,000. Oh, 100000 Okay. See, he says, this cost me 5000 but it saved me $100,000. And I thought, I thought the joke was, I paid $5,000 for this painting when I could have built a backdrop for $100. Oh, maybe. I just filled the word 1000 in in my head then because that, that's that what I That makes the most it. sense yeah. of okay, all the options. Okay. <laughs> It still seems really expensive for a matte painting, $5,000, yeah. but who knows. $5,000? I had no idea to be so much, I won't pay it. They walk through a tower with an armed gunman firing off the top of it for one of these backstage Hollywood scenes where every movie is filming at once in the same hundred square feet of the studio. <laughs> Louis hands Annie a script and tells her he's making her special talent coordinator on this upcoming project. The Wizard of Oz. But that's already been cast. He elaborates that the production will, for some reason, require 150 extras flown in from all over the world, and it's her job to get them to set on schedule. The first train load arrives this weekend. As he tells her all this, they're walking down the yellow brick road toward an enormous backdrop of the Emerald City. In exchange for this work, he promises her a raise, before adding that he also needs her to find a funny dog for the movie. He assigns her an assistant in the form of his nephew, Homer, who is currently wearing the wizard's green top hat, which he seems to have put on out of boredom. Homer offers her a dopey smile, and we cut to the exterior of the Culver Hotel. It's funny because it's uh, larger than, than a normal size hat. hat. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Homer Hinkle calls the Culver Hotel receptionist, Miss Enright. As they chat, the hotel appears to be completely empty aside from the employees. Homer is making this reservation out of convenience since the hotel is directly across the street from the studio. It sounds from the receptionist side of the call like the studio has never done something like this before, but how is that at all possible? Right. Like, the hotel was there before the studio. I feel like that would factor into your decision to put the studio there in the first place, that there's this huge hotel across the street. Especially if they're shooting a war film right now on the lot, there's no way all these rooms aren't booked with actors. Right. Unless it's just notoriously a bad hotel. Yeah, maybe. She nonchalantly confirms his reservation for 150 rooms on Sunday night, which, by the way, is exactly how many rooms the Culver Hotel has. So that's every room in the hotel. Are all the extras wrapping in a single shoot day? Maybe you'd like to book an extra night just to be safe? After she hangs up, the hotel manager, Lester Hudson, walks by and announces he's heading to the manager's convention, and he's willing to take her along since it's so dead here. She takes the confirmation for the 150 rooms and wraps it around a piece of gum so she can leave town with Lester instead of dealing with so many customers. Outside, Lester puts his nephew, Henry, in charge of the Culver Hotel for the weekend, for seemingly the first time. 
The fact that Miss Enright threw this note away actually makes surprisingly little difference to the story, except that Lester won't be here when everything goes to shit, but I doubt he would have kept everything under control. It's one more thing I'd like you to understand, Henry. If anything goes wrong, if you have any problems at all, you'll be fired and disinherited. Okay. I mean, it plays into the fact that when they go to check in, he has no record of the reservation. Right, but either way, they need a bunch of rooms. And there was going to be people that were coming into this lobby that weren't going to be able to get rooms. Right, yeah. So it's it's the same amount of people will need the same amount of rooms, and they won't be available. Right, but I mean, I guess had the reservation gone through, Chevy Chase would not have been able to book his room. Right. He would have been asking a favor of her rather than she asking the favor of him, I guess. Henry here is being played by Adam Arkin, son of Alan. We cut to the train full of extras headed to California. Turns out also aboard the train are Agent Thorpe and the Duke and Duchess. The Duke is still certain an assassin is around and sports a Groucho mustache and glasses combo. Thorpe takes a seat with Strudel in his lap and the dog immediately pisses all over him. The Duchess leaves for the bar to give Thorpe privacy to change into a clean pair of pants. The Duke shares with Thorpe more of his suspicions about their fellow passengers, but assures the agent that he is prepared for emergencies and retrieves a gun from his pocket. Thorpe leans forward to collect the gun from him, just as the train plunges into a dark tunnel. The gun goes off, and it's silent for a moment to let us think that anybody could be dead when the lights come back. Sir, I believe you just shot the dog. In the next shot, Thorpe and the Duke have bribed a train employee for access to the luggage car, or more specifically the animal car, where the Duke finds an almost identical dog in a cage. Did they bring this dog as a spare, or are they stealing (laughs) someone's dog? They're stealing somebody's dog. I think so, too. Don't feel bad about Strudel the 13th, because here is Strudel the 14th. So when the Duchess didn't recognize her dog earlier, it wasn't dementia or anything. It's because her dog keeps changing shape and ages well, and breeds. At some point, and I can't recall, I think it's when they're doing the handoff, the the previous agent says that this guy is wearing, you know, disguises all the time. And then he's like, oh, and also the Duchess is like just totally blind and won't wear her glasses. Oh, okay. I missed that line. The Duke lists off some causes of death for the previous 12 strudels. It sounds like most of them were attributable to human error. Oh, and one suicide. Suicide? Yes, yes, it was very sad. But most important of all is that the Duchess never finds out. Somehow he has kept this ruse going for 24 years. As they leave the car, a mailbag on wheels slides a short distance across the room, and the Duke is terrified and punches the mailbag, and then a large coffin on his way out of the room. When Thorpe closes the door, Rollo cuts his way out of the mailbag. So there actually was a person in there. Yeah, Yeah, which is kind of funny. Yeah. I wanted after Rollo left for the assassin to lean up out of the coffin. (laughs) I was was waiting for something like that. (laughs) But that's not what happens. We cut to Union Station in downtown LA as the train arrives. Annie exits a cab and heads inside. Do you guys recall the last time we saw the interior of Union Station, I think? Oh, yeah. Uh, On the right track? No. No, was it uh, Die Laughing? I don't remember. Oh, was it um, with the prostitute and the killer in Blowout? No, no. that's Philadelphia. That's Philadelphia. And um, On the Right Track was in New York. Why did I feel like in Die Laughing they were in a train station during one of the scenes? Um, I don't remember a train station mm-hmm. specifically. I'm trying to think of a good hint. It was a little girl. Miss Marker? No. That was also East Coast. She was running away from home. 
Because <laughs> and it wasn't Little Miss Marker. Because, huh? <laughs> no, she wasn't running away from home. Her dad was <laughs> dead. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> this wasn't an orphan. But she felt orphaned. And her parents didn't believe her. I don't remember. Oh God, book two. Oh. Uh, I've, I've just cleared that one out of my memory. Yeah, well, God, <laughs> God finds her at the train station and then drives her home in a motorcycle with a sidecar. Yeah. Moving through the station, Annie crashes into Thorpe and he apologizes. Annie starts greeting the crowds of little people coming off the train and pointing them to transportation outside. She spots Rollo running from the Union Station security and, mistaking him for one of her extras, chases him for a moment until she trips over Strudel's leash for a second encounter with Thorpe. He helps her up again. Are you hurt? No, you're over too. I wanted him to say, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Annie, you okay? <laughs> what would you tell us that you're okay? That joke wouldn't have made sense yet, though. She said her name Annie before. <laughs> yeah, but that song didn't exist yet. Yes, it did. It did? No, for sure. She chases Rollo again as Thorpe calls after her because she's dropped something. It looks like a compact. Oh, hey, wait. You dropped your uh, diaphragm. She doesn't hear him. <laughs> it's clearly an improv line. There's yeah. no way that it said that in the script. I guarantee you Chevy came up with that. Station security chases Rollo out onto the street, but he quickly encounters a crowd of little persons outside, and they invite him to hide amongst them. One woman even suggests they kiss while the guard runs by, and Rollo takes her up on the offer. When the coast is clear, the little person extras tell Rollo that he should come with them. Where are we going? We're off to see the wizard. Okay, I'll get my stuff. There's four cabs at the curb reserved for the little people, but as a secret service agent, Thorpe is somehow able to commandeer half of them for the Duke and Duchess. But four would never have been enough anyways. No, for sure. 150 people. Yeah, these aren't clown cars, Annie. (laughs) What are you doing? Outside the hotel, interim manager Henry Hudson is directing the hanging of a big banner renaming the establishment Hotel Rainbow. Another employee, Tiny, played by Pat McCormick, warns Henry that his uncle will not like this. Just then... A bus driving past the hotel loses a tire and skids up over the curb before coming to a stop. It's overloaded with Japanese men in Charlie Chan costumes, and a banner on the side of the bus cleverly reads Japanese Amateur Photography Society with each first letter in bright red to highlight the slur acronym. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a bus full of Japanese people crash? Yes. (laughs) When was that? Uh, crap. It just happened. We just had it. Hint. They were Elvis oh, impersonators. Yeah, gas. Gas, gas is correct. <laughs> this is a stupid aside, but whenever they showed the exterior of the hotel and we just saw the CH on the on the awning, it it's shaped exactly like the college, college humor. humor. I thought that too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But I also think it's weird that you wouldn't hang the banner covering that. Right. Because it's like, why would you confuse people with like, wait, why does it say rainbow at the top? What does the CH stand for? But, like, why did he do the name change? Like, I feel like there was no... I think he's trying to take initiative, and he thought that was something that would bring in more people. Right, but he doesn't He doesn't know that right. Rainbow has anything to do with the movie that's being filmed right. across Correct. the street yeah. right now. So it's in just fact, a coincidence. it's likely to dissuade them from coming here with all the people who made reservations at the Culver Hotel, <laughs> which is now labeled Hotel Rainbow. Yeah. Nobody seems discouraged, yeah. though. Yeah. <laughs> As the photographers come pouring out of the bus, they take pictures of everything. The bus driver, the tire in the road, each other tying their shoes. 
The leader of the group asks if he might procure some rooms, and Henry directs him into the lobby. There's always room under the rainbow. I feel like he came up with the slogan first, and yeah. then the name of the hotel. Moments later, Billy Barty's Nazi character, Otto, arrives at the same hotel and finds the lobby crowded with Japanese people. He shouts to them all. Ye pearl is in ye river! Which is exactly the kind of conspicuous moment you would avoid by using a subtle passphrase. Outside the windows, we can see the little people arriving, and they quickly pile into the lobby, pushing Otto closer and closer to the front desk. Homer notices Otto's resistance and urges him forward, mistaking him for one of the extras. Tiny wakes a bellhop, who is surprised to find the hotel suddenly at full capacity. Tiny seems to suspect that he's hallucinating the crowd and collects a flask from a sock for a swig. While he takes his sip, a dwarf passes between his legs into the elevator behind him. Probably the smallest guy in this whole group. Yeah. Otto is shielding his face from all the photographers in the lobby when he meets a ventriloquist with a huge dummy. Or maybe a regular sized <laughs> dummy, but it looks huge because the ventriloquist is a little person. The dummy makes a joke about Otto. Oh, you must be from Dusseldorf. <laughs> Otto punches the puppet and walks away. It's a pretty good, pretty good joke. Yeah, it's not terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's not the worst joke in this movie, <laughs> no. which is a 7,000 way tie for the rest of them. Oh. Some which are all are equally amusing. great, but just barely less good than this one. Yeah. I marked down all the sensible chuckles that I had. Okay. There are two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Another cab pulls up outside the hotel, and the actual Japanese spy, as played by Mako, asks the elderly bellhop, Pops, if a midget has arrived, and he confirms. Which is a terrible method if you are trying to be inconspicuous that yeah. you during a war with your country asks somebody if somebody else who's very conspicuous is there and yeah. you two are about to meet up right <laughs> like, well well uh no one's at war with america yet no but they're but japan's part of the war already right but not with america no, but America is already probably at this point putting people in internment camps and stuff, aren't they? Or no, not I think yet. that was after Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Harbor oh, okay, that, you're right. You're yeah. right. Fair that, enough. That's what the purpose of this map is. Yeah. So really the map should change hands in the film. Oh, like in, in reality? Yeah, yeah, because they actually did have an idea where the defenses were to strike them. Otis, the other bellhop, leads the spy into the lobby. <laughs> Otis, the laziest named bellhop who operates the elevator. I know, yeah. <laughs> Mako's smile is wiped away when he sees the crowd of little people that he must sort through to find the German spy. Maybe start with the guy sporting a Hitler mustache, though. That'd save a lot of time. Next, Thorpe and the Duke and Duchess arrive. As they pass through the lobby to the front desk, the Duchess confuses the little people for children. Oh, look at all the children. It must be recess. I mean, this is another case of she's totally blind right. without her glasses. Another busload of little people arrive, and looking down on all of them, tiny jokes. This looks like an aerial view of an unemployment line. At first I thought he said Aryan view. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Now that would be really the Billy Barty joke. Because like I was like, oh, that's really dark. Like, you know, it, you know, Hitler want, would probably want to eliminate all the little people too. That that makes sense. So, so they he, couldn't be employed? Yeah. <laughs> I don't I went way too far with this joke yeah. in my mind before You're I like, realized oh, he Ariel, said Ariel. Just above because <laughs> Tiny is his name is a joke on the fact that he's like seven feet tall. Well, I mean, but didn't we also bring that up though on on the Willy Wonka uh review? 
Oh, that, that, that they were, couldn't find any right. little person actors because they were all killed. Yeah, which yeah. which is weird to me that that in, in this movie that Hitler would be employing one to do anything. Right. Yeah. And surprisingly, none of the people in this film, uh, in in the credits that I found, were Oompa Loompas. At least not in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I think they were Oompa Loompas in Epic Movie, mm. but I left that credit off of any that I mentioned because I felt like they would want me to. Annie comes in behind the last of the little people. At the front desk, we learn that Thorpe has reserved the entire top floor of the hotel. When Henry slaps the bell on his desk to call a bellhop, the Duke dives for cover, fearing some sort of bell-activated assassination plot. Again, the Duchess bumps into a little person and mistakes him for a child, rubbing his head. He reaches up and grabs her boob for sexy revenge as she leaves for the elevator. There's some weird joke because she realizes that he's bald. Like, yeah. well, not totally. She says bald, his hair is going to grow in. He, yeah, she's like, "Oh, when you grow up, your hair is going to grow up thick." And then, like, I think he realizes that she doesn't know. He's really not a, doesn't understand yeah. that he's not a child. So he's like, "I'm taking advantage of this." Right. As Annie attempts to check in, she learns that no reservation has been kept for her party. Her assistant Homer and acting manager Henry make jokes about how such little people shouldn't need so many rooms. Annie tells them right away that short jokes aren't funny and it would be cool if we could stop making them, and yet the entire movie continues doing it for another hour and 15 minutes. Yes. As a last resort, Henry takes an action that I don't think any hotel manager would ever suggest, and he says, that guy just reserved the whole top floor. Go bother this other high-profile yeah. customer to convince him to give up some of his rooms. Rather than the obviously logical state of, just tell three of them per bed to yeah. lay the other direction. That's what You'll you be do. fine. <laughs> in reality, they didn't actually all fit in this hotel, so they booked rooms at the Adams Hotel across the street when they were making the film. But it's like, there's another hotel right over there. There's your answer. When she sees that it's the man that she kept bumping into at the train station, she's disappointed, but she attempts to schmooze him anyway, and it's not very effective, because I don't think it's up to him. The, the Duke wants a full floor because he wants it to be assassin-proof. Chevy improvises a joke as he steps away from her, and it doesn't really make sense. The, the Duke's very tired of the long trip. Dog's name is Duke. Well, okay. I think he was trying to cover it up because he shouldn't say that he's... A Duke? A Duke, okay. because, yeah. Maybe that makes sense then. I'm colorblind, kid. <laughs> Honestly, it, it did it did feel improvised, but I felt like it was improvised in that I think he said it and realized the script was stupid for having written that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so he was covering it up. I didn't. I, it didn't even occur to me that he would try to keep it secret that the Duke is, because they refer to him as the Duke so often. Yeah. Don't insult the Duke. <laughs> what is that from? From one of the running scares. Yeah, I thought so. The leader of the photography group notices how upset Annie looks and suggests that maybe his party could share some rooms to assist her. He's very excited to learn that they're making a movie and assumes it must be a comedy because little people are inherently funny to him and everybody else who made this movie, apparently. When he asks what the story's about, she stupidly offers him her only copy of the screenplay to borrow. How is there not an NDA in place for this material? I know it's based on a book and there's a popular musical It's also musical 1938. Already. Like. Yeah. <laughs> He yeah, plans to... But but a script is different. I mean, the script could, for all we know, barely touch on the book. Yeah, there's changes. Obviously, thing. the ruby slippers aren't ruby in the book. You know, there's there's changes all over the place. He plans to read the script between now and dinner and then return the favor and script simultaneously by buying her a meal. They introduce themselves as Annie and Akito, and we get one of these standard issue bowing back and forth moments as they part ways. 
Even though they never fleshed out any of the specifics of the room-sharing plan, Annie drags Homer to the front desk to announce that they have scrounged up enough rooms for all their actors. The hotel dining room is so busy tonight that the manager and hotel detective are operating as waiters. The Duke orders some Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, and the manager gives away that he's never heard of it. And, uh, will you be having wine with that, sir? Well, that is fine. For reference, a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild Vintage 2020 costs almost $700. Sharp tries to eat his food, but Strudel barks at him before he can take each bite. The dog is actually not super different looking from the one he voiced the previous year in Benji 3, a.k.a. Oh Heavenly Dog. He distracts the dog by pretending to point out the Hindenburg above them, and somehow it works. This film takes place only one year after the disaster, and might have been seen in poor taste by his distinguished guests. Outside, we see the assassin getting out of the back of a truck full of pigs. We also see outside that the Munchkin cast have hired escorts to join them for dinner. A waitress at a table asks if one of the little people would like crushed nuts for his dessert, and his friend urges him not to make the obvious joke. Don't you dare. Is it like your tits show? And then he just grabs him by the face and knocks him backwards so he can't finish the joke. To show that he is evil, we see Otto sitting by himself Daffy Duck laughing at today's obituaries. <laughs> That's such a weird joke. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just don't even, like... Oh, people died. I don't know them. <laughs> I feel like that's in something else too. Does does uh, Sender do that in uh, no um, the stupids or something? There's something where somebody's laughing at obituaries, but I forget what. Oh, it is. I, I don't know about obituaries, but I I just think of uh, Jane Curtin laughing at the Bible in the hotel room <laughs> in the Conan. <laughs> that's good. The assassin enters the dining hall and quickly spots the Duke and Duchess. To blend in with the crowd, he crosses the room, walking on his knees. Mako, as the Japanese spy, enters the room, and he is routinely introduced with a gong sound because he's Japanese and a bad guy in this film. He moves from table to table, blurting out, the pearl is in the river, which, again, not how you're supposed to use a passphrase. At the same time, Akito and the Duke order glasses of white and red wine, respectively. The assassin takes note of the drink order and pulls something out of his briefcase. He follows the manager across the dining room with a tablet in his hand, repeatedly attempting to plunk it into one of the two drinks. And by tablet, I don't mean an iPad. I mean a small pill. Did anybody think you were putting an iPad in there? That's what a tablet means now. When he finally gets close enough, he drops it in the white wine without looking. Duke gets his drink and Akito gets the poison. It's very weird to me that the filmmakers didn't think this was so tremendously sad that they should find another way to finish right? this scene. Yeah. I, I was shocked at this. I was yeah. like, I thought we liked this character. He was funny. He was charming. And he we've was... established we can kill this dog as many times as we want and it will always be funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was just like, wh what? And, it and there's more of it later. And it later. doesn't end here. Yeah. I was just no, shocked. Yeah. I was just like, but especially this one in which we've actually come to know this sweet man yeah. who's genuine, you know, has a genuine connection with Annie. And I'm like, what, what are we doing? But the weird thing is, I feel like the sensibility of this film, they would not have done this to one of the little person actors. But the Japanese man is fine. Yeah. It's, they, they think of the Japanese characters in this film as like less than extras even because they're just, they're just bodies filling the scene. It's crazy. I mean, only one of them gets any lines and development as a person, and they fucking poisoned him right here in this scene. 
On the dance floor, Tiny is sweeping a little person actress off her feet, and their size differential reminds me of the guy in Being John Malkovich from the Seven and a Half Floor Orientation video. A story is moving me like the other, therefore I shall make ye <coughs> me wife, and and I shall build a floor for ye between the, between the seventh and the eighth in my own building, so at least there'll be one place on God's green earth. Well, ye and your accursed kind can live in peace. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Suddenly, the Duchess is having a panic attack because she's noticed in her compact mirror that she's missing a pearl from her necklace. From the next table over, Akito notices the pearl has landed in the middle of her plate on top of the liver they ordered for the dog. And we get the requisite switching of the R's and L's joke. The pearl is in the Reba! <laughs> Otto overhears this and repeats the passphrase. Behind him, the Japanese agent looks up at Otto. The assassin is now very confused because the Duke has taken several sips from his drink and is now approaching the dance floor for a waltz with his wife. Otto joins Akito at his table and asks him to verify that he said the pearl is in the river, and he does. Otto thinks he's talking to the spy, and Akito thinks he's talking to one of the Munchkin actors. Well, at last, the plot can proceed. <laughs> oh, the plot is excellent. With the help of your people, it should be very successful. <laughs> the American dog will be blown into the sky. Oh, very ingenious. Follow <laughs> the road, and you're a winner. <laughs> and of course, he makes. A yellow joke about the yellow brick road because this was made in the 80s when akito turns away briefly otto slips the defense map into akito's copy of the wizard of oz script what role will you play after this i have many roles <laughs> you must have a good agent <laughs> i am a good agent he punctuates this last comment with a big sig hail and i don't think there's any chance akito didn't understand what that meant yeah so he sits here with this confused face after Otto leaves annie finds akito at his table and apologizes for breaking off their dinner plans because her work has gotten out of hand when Otto crosses paths with the real spy mako leans back to whisper the pearl is in the river the duchess overhears him and says she already found it Otto is very confused Otto points out the fellow countryman who already accepted the map. Akito returns Annie's script and tells her he thinks it's great. After she leaves, he takes a big sip of his poisoned wine and then collapses at the table alone. The German and Japanese spies see this happen and assume Annie has taken him out. They decide to follow her out of the dining room. The Duke notices first that Akito is face down in his meal, and when Thorpe checks for a pulse, he tells the hotel detective to get the manager. Once Tiny learns that their guest has died, he tries to finish the man's wine, but Henry spills it on the floor where the dog laps it up. That's all that needed to happen. Yeah. Knock the drink on the floor, the dog drinks it, and dies. Okay, we know there's poison in the room. As Thorpe and the Royals approach the elevator, we see Chevy holding a leash that suddenly goes taut, and we hear the sound of a dog corpse being dragged across the floor. <laughs> I actually really liked this bit. Is that was that one of your sensible chuckles or no? No. Okay. Uh, I just liked his the physical acting of that where that you can tell that there's some slack in the leash and then suddenly it goes taut and mm -hmm. he's like, oh, uh, whoops. Oddly enough, this won't be the only Chevy Chase movie where a dog's being dragged on a leash. Yeah. What was that? 
uh, vacation. Oh, I thought you were when, referring back to Oh Heavenly Dog. No, no, no. <laughs> In vacation when the cop pulls Behind him the over, car, yeah. There's just the little dangled leash. Yeah, that's James Keach, right, is the, is the cop? I think, uh, I think so. Yeah. One of the little people introduces Rollo to Annie, hoping to get him a job, and she seems excited to meet him. Tiny and Henry carry Akito's body in his chair across the dining room. Tiny suggests not calling the police until Henry's uncle returns. Yeah, but, but he's not going to be back until tomorrow. What do we do with the body meantime? You leave that to me. What what could possibly be gained from not reporting, from this, not reporting this death? Nothing. You've, you've already out-earned the entire rest of the year. Your mm-hmm. uncle's not going to be upset about this. I mean, he will be upset, but he'll also be rich even though everyone was just enjoying what looked like dinner it seems like annie is trying to convince all the little people across the street to begin their work day like suddenly it's daytime outside and they're all moving across the street for a costume test as the little people are corralled through the lobby toward the studio for makeup the japanese and german spies exchange ethnic slurs in anger over their situation homer picks up otto mistaking him for one of the actors and walks away out of the hotel uh, yeah i mean this th- th- this produced an audible gasp for me yeah like, i had to I come just, in and check on I you i was like oh my god like i just like it's so incredibly offensive i think mm-hmm. to pick somebody up like that like, yeah to treat them as a child <laughs> yeah like oh god this movie <laughs> and even though they make her out to be the most reasonable and respectful person in the group there's a couple moments where carrie fisher is talking to these people like their children like yeah okay don't forget to finish your drink and then we got to go over for the makeup test and it's like don't don't but I, like, like that. yeah but like not not as a, a joke or not as yeah, like bad no. acting or anything it's like, literally that's just, just that's how a polite person would talk to a person this tall that's yeah. it yeah The Japanese spy thinks it's hilarious, though, that Otto has been carried out. Upstairs in the hotel, a line of little people engage the services of a prostitute who has taken up residence in one of the hotel rooms. In the elevator on their way back down to the room, the Duke realizes that the heart attack of Akito and Strudel number 14 are likely related, and the assassins must be after him. Thorpe doesn't seem too concerned, even though the Duke is correct. Outside, the assassin watches the doors of the Culver Hotel from a manhole cover, propped open with a switchblade. Tiny gives Thorpe directions to the nearest pet shop. The assassin cocks his gun and prepares to take a shot at the Duke, but when a man blows a horn outside the hotel, the Duke is spooked again and ducks to the floor. The assassin shoots over his head, killing another Japanese photographer, and Tiny seems to know what happened immediately. Oh no, not another one. Yeah, but this one's been shot. Right. It's yeah. a the other one was a heart situation. attack, and like yeah. he t- he knows this man's been shot because he mentions it later. Yeah. So and what he does makes no sense. What? But there's so it just baffles me that there's no reaction about why. How did you get shot? Right. A pair of Munchkin socks walk by in the foreground and kick the switchblade out from under the manhole cover, which falls on the assassin's head, and we hear his muffled screams from underground. Now, for some reason. Tiny takes the second dead photographer into the hotel bar and orders a pair of drinks with him. I thought he understood this guy was dead. And I, maybe he does. I think he does. I think he's like weekend at burning it. Like, oh no, he's drunk. It's You fine. can go in and order a drink on your own, Tiny. You don't need to bring a corpse in here to order a drink. When a little person walking across the bar points out that there's a bullet hole in the man's chest, Tiny steals some ABC gum out of the mouth of a cigarette girl to plug the hole. That gum can't help him. Well, it certainly can't hurt him. For some reason, no one is reacting appropriately to the obviously dead man, which everyone has acknowledged has a bullet hole in his chest. 
Okay, it took me to just now to realize what ABC gum was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's branded from the station, ABC. <laughs> we cut to the hotel bathroom as the German and Japanese spies enter. Otto is now sporting a munchkin wig and outfit. It might even have been his striped socks that we saw kick the knife out from under the manhole cover. They make plans to break into Annie's room and collect the script. After they leave, we see that two little people were using the bathroom stalls, and even though they checked for feet, they didn't see any because the feet weren't hanging low enough. Is that, okay. That's the joke. Is that the joke? I, I just, thought for some reason, yeah. unexplained that they're standing on the seats, but the joke is that their legs aren't long enough. Oh, okay. See, that's I didn't get that, because I was like, why are they implying that little people poop with their feet on the seats? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that? I mean, that's how I do it. <laughs> Richard's fairly small now. <laughs> I just like to be comfortable. <laughs> just like to hug my own legs while I boot. Marlo, did you hear that? Sounds like somebody's after the script. Better tell Miss Clark. As the spies pick the lock to Annie's room, another little person announces a huge party in the lobby and people start clearing out. Thorpe and the Duke return with a completely different breed of dog. A blue sports strudel, a new dog. A new ball. A new ball. All right. Makes them feel like a new dog. The Duchess is looking out over the city from their balcony, and the Duke joins her. Thorpe starts bouncing the dog's chew toy ball in the room. The spies are ransacking Annie's room, one floor down from the Duke's, and he can hear them and assumes the assassins are closing in. When Thorpe leaves to investigate, Strudel tries to escape the room, so Thorpe tosses the new ball to distract the dog, and of course, it goes soaring over the balcony, and the dog jumps after it catching it before a long fall to the bottom floor of the hotel. Good night, Liebchen. <laughs> Good night, Strudel. Luckily, only the Duke sees it. When Thorpe knocks on the door to Annie's room, the German and Japanese spies escape out the window. He finds the room ransacked and steps inside. Annie arrives moments later to find her door open and collects a vase from the floor to defend herself with. She tries to bash Thorpe over the head, and he notices just in time to spin around and throw her onto the bed. She screams for the police because she thinks he's an attacker. He puts a hand over her mouth to explain that he's a secret service agent, and he gets her to promise not to scream. And I, uh, suppose that's your gun, huh? Oh, no, I wear a uh, shoulder holster. I get it. I just sit here with a pause. <laughs> like, he yeah. doesn't go any further, she doesn't explain it, and a phone rings to interrupt the moment. I think it's someone calling from her job, but she says she can't speak because she has a secret service agent in her room. Outside, Otto is intrigued to learn that such an agent is staying at the same hotel. On the floor where the spies yanked out all the drawers of her dresser, Thorpe is fiddling with Annie's underwear. She tells Thorpe about the crazy day she's had, and he picks up on a specific detail about a German film company trying to steal her script. He asks to see it to make sense of it. Just as she hands it to Thorpe, the hotel manager bursts in to complain about the little person actors destroying his hotel. The spies creep along the narrow ledge toward another window to get into the building. We cut to the hotel kitchen where about 40 of the actors are using pots and pans as percussion instruments. One of them slides another into what looks like an oven and then closes it up and turns it, it on. It's a dishwasher. Oh, okay. We cut to another little person played by Jerry Marin and he throws an onion like a baseball across the room when a batter hits it and it explodes. Jerry Marin, as I said at the beginning, was 
the head of the Lollipop Guild, one of the actual singing characters of the Lollipop Guild song in the original Wizard of Oz. The evil cowboy little person opens the, I guess, dishwasher and retrieves his friend who looks burnt or he's at least smoking. He's, Maybe it's just steam. It's steam yeah. coming yeah. off of him. He's, he's moist. Henry the manager and Annie enter the kitchen and he gestures to the chaos. Henry flicks the lights on and off to get everyone's attention and Annie tells the crowd to return to their rooms in the next five minutes or risk being fired. They all rush out of the kitchen. Henry turns the lights off before Annie has left. She notices the silhouette of a little person out on the fire escape through the window and moves to open it. At first, she thought it was Rollo, and when he turns to face her, she realizes it's Otto. Which is weird, because Otto is like half the height of Rollo. But they're wearing the same outfit. That's true, they are. So, it's, I guess during the costume fitting, they're wearing like the same costume for the That for the makes film. sense, yeah. Rollo and his girlfriend are sitting in a dumbwaiter listening to the exchange. Rollo hears Otto speaking and recognizes the voice from the bathroom as the person who plans on stealing her script. Rollo tells his girlfriend to ride the dumbwaiter up a few floors to notify Thorpe of what's happening down here. Otto asks Annie for the map multiple times before she gets annoyed with him. When she tries to walk away, he starts disrobing her with the blade of his sword. Eventually, he's cut her whole blouse off and it falls to the floor. It should probably be said that he has a sword inside his cane, which he uses all the time. Right. Rollo shows up and challenges Otto to a round of fisticuffs, but Otto continues using his sword. Eventually, Rollo grabs his own sword, but Otto cuts it in half. I think it's a prop sword or a knife or something. Yeah. And uh, like at this point, because the two of them are in full costume and they're the same costume and there's like Otto is bald uh, but at this point, he's got the wig on for the costume. They're both wearing like blonde wigs. Yeah. And I was expecting this to be, you know, a mistaken identity mm-hmm. scene. Somebody's going to come in and not know which one's which. Right. But then it just doesn't nope. happen. No, they just fight for a while. <laughs> Rollo tries to defend himself with a honing rod, but Otto isn't impressed. He turns to slice a big piece of hanging meat as a demonstration, but his sword barely leaves a mark. So he uses the honing rod in Rollo's hand to sharpen his weapon and then turns to slice the meat properly. This was a sensible chuckle. Yeah, that he's actually sharpening it and (laughs) making it look like a sword fight. The sword fight continues for a while and Rollo's form improves until he actually disarms Otto. The Japanese spy sneaks up behind Rollo and knocks him out with a pan. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone get knocked out with a pan? Raiders? I think so, yeah. Oh, okay. While the spies argue over who was winning the sword fight, they realize Annie is escaping and chase her. She leaves her dress on some steps to imply she must have disappeared up them, but closes herself in a walk-in freezer to hide. She quickly realizes that she has locked herself inside it and starts looking for a tauntaun to cut open. (laughs) Thorpe returns to the Duke's quarters with another dog, and the assassin watches him to learn the special knock. The assassin ducks into a closet to change into a hotel uniform when suddenly Rollo's girlfriend jumps out of the dumbwaiter and runs to tell Thorpe what she's seen in the downstairs kitchen. Annie shivers in the freezer when a silhouette opens the door and enters gun drawn. When he starts talking, she realizes it's Thorpe and she rushes for the door to keep it from closing again, but he mistakes the motion for a hug and blocks her way. Thorpe looks around for a light switch And when the lights come on, they suddenly notice two dead people hanging in the freezer. So this is where Tiny put the bodies. Yeah, he hung them on meat hooks. He stabbed them again. Annie is particularly traumatized when she recognizes Mr. Akito, like her friend who she was just having dinner with a second ago. 
Thorpe was present when Akito died, but folds a pair of glasses in half to double up the lenses and inspect a bullet hole in the second body. He claims to have learned this trick from his father, also a Secret Service agent, who was killed recently on a mission in the Far East. He finally thinks to offer Annie his coat. After Thorpe hammers on the door for a bit, Annie invites him to share the coat for extra warmth. Annie tells him about how Otto kept asking for a map, and Thorpe shows her the one he found in the Wizard of Oz script. What is it? Looks like a damn good map of our mainland military defenses. The score here has shades of the Jeopardy theme to it. Mm. Did you hear that? Mm-mm. It would be warmer if we share. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Silly of me. Yeah. Their attempts at warmth evolve into a makeout session. We cut to the door to the Duke's room as the assassin knocks the special knock at the door to deliver a meal in a hotel uniform. The assassin wastes no time in giving himself away, though. For 25 years, I've waited for this day. I thank you. <laughs> At last, I will avenge you. The honor of my father. You must die. The Duke is terrified to come face to face with his greatest fear. The latest strudel, I think 16, is tugging at the assassin's pants as he approaches the Duke. Apparently, the assassin's father was supposed to kill the Duke and failed. But why? Help! Kill me! Like, in the middle of his sentence, he asks for help. The assassin claims that he is the last in his family line and has to save face. The Duke calls for his wife, needlessly endangering her. The Duke bolts out of the room and the assassin assembles a gun to follow him. On the same floor, an elevator opens and a group of little people exit and move through a crowd from the photography society. The Duke tries to join the elevator full of photographers, but there's no room, so he crosses the hall to another room. The assassin thinks he's in the elevator and fires what sounds like a Tommy gun into the elevator, killing all of the photographers. Yeah. What? What? This I, is weird. You just... You... And, and then tiny opens the elevator doors back up right so he's in there but he's off to the side where the buttons are so he didn't get hit but right. everyone else in the elevator is dead yeah and he leans out and he says i could have held the elevator sir that's it what it's totally reality breaking in terms of the movie you've set up so far yeah. that this guy the hotel detective who now knows the cause of all of the deaths because he sees the guy holding the gun is just like hey Why'd you kill all these people? I could have just held the elevator door for you. Anyway, have a nice night, sir. What? Doesn't make any sense. In the lobby, a woman is mopping the floors when the munchkins steal her rolling water bucket and start riding it around the room. The Duke hides in a closet. But it's down- her favorite bucket. That's what she says. <laughs> How many of these do you have? Go get your second favorite. No, this is ridiculous. The Duke hides in a closet downstairs, and just as the assassin finds him, he is knocked out by the Japanese spy. Otto and the Japanese spy plan to take the Duke hostage to trade for the map in Thorpe's possession. By the way, the Japanese spy has a name in the credits, but I don't think they ever say it in the film, which is why I keep referring to him as the Japanese spy. Right, right. Rollo and his girlfriend arrive to release Annie and Thorpe from the freezer. Tiny rolls all the newly dead photographers from the elevator massacre into the freezer after they leave. We cut back to the lobby and we get the... Doesn't he make some sort of off-color joke there too about like having invested in meat hooks? Yeah, or like there's not enough hooks for all these people or uh, something like that. Like what? Don't do that. No. 
We cut back to the lobby and we get the picture painted by history of a hotel overflowing with little people who are literally swinging on the chandeliers and toilet papering the joint. Manager Henry sits unamused as the lights of a switchboard blink madly in front of him. Up in Annie's room, Thorpe is annoyed he can't call out of the hotel. Annie changes into some clothes and says she just needs to powder her nose and they can go, but before Thorpe can explain that he has her compact, the Duchess bursts in to tell them about the real assassin that chased her husband away. So we never come back to the compact. Yeah. This right. is the last moment we get of even referencing it. Thorpe leaves the Duchess with Annie, but she can't sit still and runs out of the room. Annie chases after her. A group of little actresses led by Zelda Rubenstein encounter Tiny and invite him to a party. He is reluctant to attend, but his flask is now empty, so they try tempting him. Never party while I'm on duty. But there's gonna be booze and women. Well, I guess it is my duty to check this party out. Yeah! Zelda kind of sounds like Yardley Smith a little bit here. Yeah, I, I spotted her earlier in the film when yeah. they were all coming in through the front door. Because I, I had seen in the trivia that this is her first film. Right. And I was, so I was always kind of looking for her. And it was like watching Very people come in. It was like, oh, oh there yeah. she is. <laughs> the hotel employee Otis is working now as an elevator operator, which I assume is where the character's name came from. Annie and the Duchess follow Strudel into a barber shop in the lobby where they are quickly trapped by the same spies who have taken the Duke. Thorpe and Rollo move through the hotel's chaos looking for all the missing people. In another room, we see that the little women have Tiny all tied up. Henry tries desperately to convince his guests to behave. We see a pair of winged monkeys doing acrobatics from these swinging chandeliers. Is it supposed to be like a Gulliver's Travels kind of thing that they did with Tiny? Like, Oh, it, yeah, I guess. I mean, he's like, he's like pinned to the floor with ropes tied over him. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Or like Willow, but that's later. Yeah. When Mad Mardigan is tied down by the fairies. Is it Mad Mardigan or Willow? No, Willow it, gets tied it, it, down. It's Willow and his friend uh, yeah. Migosh. Who's in this, right? Uh, no, it's different Different uh, warriors from Willow are in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thorpe stumbles upon the hostages in the barber shop and quickly joins them as a hostage. Henry tries to coax the little people off of his chandelier until he is thrown onto one and stranded there. Otis catches a pair of little people stealing cable from an elevator shaft and steps into it before realizing that the car will plummet to the basement, which it quickly does. Talking about the cable. The cable! When he climbs out of the elevator shaft, Otis is now being played by a dwarf as though he were compressed by the fall. I think this is Tony Cox actually coming out of the elevator shaft. Is it? Yeah. Because none of the other uh, dwarves are African American right. in the whole film. But he's right. credited in the movie. Oh yeah. Well, then, yeah. Back in the barbershop, Otto is checking Annie for the map, doing an especially thorough job around her breasts until the Japanese agent stops him. Watch it, Bob! Hey, 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 hey! Hey, hey, no time for pygmy perversion. Next, they search Thorpe. Otto tosses Strudel back into the lobby for plot reasons, and the Duchess doesn't appreciate it, so she kicks him in the butt. And then Otto slaps her leg, and she kicks him in the face. It's a really <laughs> funny, like, reaction that he mm -hmm. has to it. That that was my other sensible yeah. chuckle, was, like, the, the reflex action of him hitting her in the at, below the knee, and so her leg just goes up and kicks him <laughs> yeah. in the face. But his his reaction is perfect to that kick. The Japanese agent takes this opportunity to inform Thorpe that he is the one who killed Thorpe's father. Thorpe refuses to hand over the map until Otto threatens to torture Annie. Oh, that map! Uh, I hid it in Strudel's locker. The Japanese agent sends Otto to collect the dog he just threw out, but when Otto finds it, the dog runs away. 
Rollo is addressing the entire cast of Wizard of Oz to explain Thorpe's situation and that they need to keep a lookout for Otto. In the middle of his speech, Rollo's girlfriend spots Otto cornering the dog and points him out to the crowd. That's the guy with the dog! He tried to kill me! Let's get him! They chase Otto out of the scene just as Homer enters the hotel with 12 dogs on leashes. The manager is still stuck on a chandelier looking like he's given up his will to live. Is this where Miss Clark wants the dog auditions? Sure, why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come on. Henry screams to Tiny for help, but he's still tied up in the other room. The little people chase Otto and Strudel back through the lobby and crash through the leashes of all Homer's dogs. Henry's uncle returns and is pissed about the rainbow banner immediately. In the doorway, he is stampeded by dogs and then Otto and then the rest of the cast as they run directly across the street onto the lot of Culver City Studios. I feel like there's a missing joke here about the dogs. Yes, for I sure. I don't yeah. understand why... They don't wrap up the story. Strudel is... Like, he starts as a Toto-esque dog, and or he ends as a Toto-esque yeah. dog, but, like, and all of these other 12 dogs are as well. And I, I just don't understand. There's no joke there. Like, they didn't I, finish yeah. it. I guarantee you they shot an end to that arc and then decided to cut it for okay. some reason. The guard at the studio doesn't stop them. You're a little early for work, aren't you? That guy's a Nazi spy! Don't let him get out! The assassin finally regains consciousness in the closet where the Japanese agent knocked him out. He rushes into the barbershop with his gun out, and the Japanese agent picks up his camera to shoot at the assassin, because we learned in a throwaway line earlier that this camera is actually a gun. Well, doesn't he he shoot the other guy with this, or did he use a real gun? He used a real gun before, but then he points the camera at Thorpe, and he says, careful, this thing doesn't shoot pictures, if you know what I mean. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But when the assassin sees it, he thinks he's just getting a free photograph, and he's excited. The Japanese spy and assassin both shoot each other, and the Duke is relieved to see his assassin finally killed. One of the little people, Wedgie, rushes back through the lobby to inform Thorpe that they have the Nazi cornered on the lot, and everyone heads across the street. The entire chase blasts through a movie set, knocking a platform and camera crew into a pool and splashing an actress on a diving board. Otis tries briefly to retrieve the map from the dog, but gives up when the angry mob gets closer. He chases the dog into a dressing room and is distracted by a lot of half-dressed women. Soon, all the little people are rushing through the same room, yanking open shower curtains and stealing women's towels. One actor stays behind to torture the women. Yeah, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, they're all screaming at him. Like, I thought the joke was going to be that he was going to hide in the fog that's at the lower level of this room yeah, yeah. and that he was just going to spy on them, but they can all see him and they're screaming the whole time he's in there. Yeah. We cut to the set of Gone with the Wind, which famously shot the same year as Wizard of Oz at the same studio with the same director, Victor Fleming, at the helm. We see doubles of Fleming, Clark Gable, and Vivian Lee on set. The set is overrun by all the participants in the chase scene, and Otto chases Strudel around under an actress's skirt. Clark Gable seems amused. Hey, Victor. I think you should leave this scene in the picture. <laughs> Otto takes the dog's collar and books it for the exit. He steals a car, and Rollo hijacks a horse-drawn carriage from a western set. Stunt cowboys fire blanks at the stolen carriage. I, I liked that detail that they're like, hey, you, stop, and they're using their prop guns to get them to slow yeah. down. In the chaos, two horses are forced to crash hard into each other, and it looks pretty awful, but a playful bonk sound added to the audio softens the blow. The chase goes through a western public hanging scene, 
and an actor's support is knocked out from under him, actually hanging the actor in the process. Annie and Thorpe find Strudel back on the Wizard of Oz set, but Thorpe says they don't need him because he lied and the dog doesn't have the map. He's got it. He holds it up to show her, and a big fan blows it out into the road. Just as he recollects it, Otto almost runs him over. Rollo's horses break loose from his carriage and leave it headed straight for the Emerald City backdrop. Thorpe has to dive-tackle Annie out of its path, but Rollo crashes through the set and then suddenly wakes up back in the ramshackle building from the start of the film. Uh, Yay. I, I thought for sure that this was some kind of gaslight, like that that he woke up and he's like, oh, what happened? Is like, oh, you're, you're, you did this and that. It's like, ah, I'm just kidding. You saved the day, Rollo. Like, oh, okay. Like, I, I thought for sure that that's what was going to happen. We're not going to invalidate this whole film already. Right. In the middle of the climax. It turns out that when he fell after fixing the antenna, it kicked off this whole dream of a film we've been watching. Everyone around him are people from the story. Tiny, the Duke and Duchess, the theater manager, the assassin, Annie, Thorpe. It's Even not Tiny, Thor- though. It's Timmy? Yeah. The one, one guy's <laughs> well, yeah. name got changed slightly, but they're all slightly different people. Because, and you were there. And you were yeah. there. So they aren't the same people. They're not yeah. supposed to be the same. Even Strudel's there, sort of. And tonight I will bake you your favorite Strudel. <laughs> I'm going to eat a dog? No, we're going to pet a dog. <laughs> We're going to eat a dolphin. <laughs> no, we're going to pet a dolphin. Yeah, hey, we're going to eat a dolphin. Hey, Lenny, you're not going to eat a dolphin, pal. You're going to pet one. Oh, yeah, we, that's right. We're going we're gonna to yeah. pet one. We're going to pet a dolphin. That reminds me of the sketch I still need to make for the end of The Wizard of Oz where she's like, and you were there, and you. And Auntie M's like, and was I there? And she's like, no, no, you weren't there. And he's like, but that, that mean old lady down the street was there, and the <laughs> wizard was there that just came to town? Really? But I wasn't I wasn't there? No. But basically everyone I've ever met, every person whose name I know in the whole <laughs> universe was there except for you, Auntie M. You who took me in in my time of need. Uh, what I didn't like was that they're implying that this impact woke him up. Right. But he got hit in the head and knocked out with a frying pan earlier in the movie. Yeah, but that didn't really happen. That was but, part of a dream. Right. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Just because I die in a dream doesn't mean I'm really dead. This isn't the Matrix, Richard. Well, luckily, also, like, 20 Japanese photographers are also not dead. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> maybe your point is that if he were knocked unconscious in his dream, that he should have noticed that he could still see his unconscious body and watch scenes he wasn't in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is strange. I never just dripped into the third person in my real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and here's where I point out that uh, they never wrap up the story about Strudel 16 looking exactly like Toto because they said they were looking for a dog for their movie. It's like, if you're going to cut out the end of that arc, then cut out all of the stuff that led into it. It's too much of it. I guess. But for the record, Toto was played by a dog named Terry, not Strudel. So it must have been one of the other ones that Homer was watching. They named the Terrier Terry. They're not creative. This is the 30s. (laughs) That's why they're taking IPs and making movies out of them. (laughs) Yeah. Thorpe leads him outside for a surprise. A bus is here to collect actors to deliver to Hollywood. Homer Hinkle, it turns out, is the only person from the dream who is the same person in real life. Hey, didn't you get that letter we wrote you? No, I look in the post office every day. He opens the back of his bus and Rollo joins a large group of little person actors headed to the same movie set. Billy Barty walks up to introduce himself. The name's Z-Mine. 
Tmar. Hagen to the stars. Stick with me, son, and I'll take you to the top. So when he told Akito that he's a good agent, he meant it. Right. Also, is his name a joke on Alzheimer's? Alzheimer? Yeah, I don't know if I don't that know was supposed to be a is. reference to something. Yeah. Annie and Thorpe say their goodbyes. Well, you always said no dream was too big, and no dreamer too small. Thorpe reminds him not to miss the wedding, presumably his to Annie. The manager reminds him as they pull away. There's always room under the rainbow! And we see a banner raised in place on the side of the building that reads Rainbow Mission, Culver, Kansas. Mako appears to take pictures of the departing bus. Thorpe and Annie stand aside to kiss, but a dog interrupts them. Thorpe throws a ball and the dog chases it into the street where he is quickly eclipsed by a car and everyone pauses in terror, but then they hear the dog barking, so everything's okay. We watch the bus full of actors on the way to Hollywood under the credits with a song sung by the little person actors about going to Hollywood. The end. Thumbs down for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 really it's really annoying. It's too much. It's four stories squeezed into it's it's a story about a hotel it's a story about a spy it's a story about a movie getting made and it's a story about an assassin and a duke it's too much okay i'm okay i'm giving it a reluctant thumbs up okay and i will i'm actually glad that you are because i don't think this is a three thumbs down movie no it's it's not not and that's the thing And, and and honestly my complaints about this movie are really all of just the offensiveness that is left in it because yeah. you know like and I I realize that that is a you know it's a sign of the times in which it was made so I you know I'm giving it a slight pass on that which is the only reason it's a reluctant thumbs up because I think I wouldn't recommend this to most people because I'm like yeah you probably don't want to watch a movie with all of this stuff in it still but I actually enjoyed the intertwined stories and the sort All of the mix them up the the ridiculousness of like why is there a room full of japanese men that are all wearing white suits and why are there a hundred you know little people also there and the only two people that we're supposed to meet were in a white suit and a little person yeah. where that would be a unique thing and like you know and then and things, they need to say the specific passphrase that other people are now saying yeah that other people are saying the same passphrase and like there's so much of that in this movie where it keeps coming around and just kind of like paying off checking back in in on itself and something and i'm and i'm like it's kind of it's a complicated movie to have written. Yes, I agree with that. And and I I thought that that was amusing. But there are uh, just a couple strings like we said the dog that doesn't they don't finish the story there. But I think that there was honestly I think it's so complicated there was more to it. There was there was probably other stuff that that didn't make it, not just the dog thing. I think there was other stuff that got cut. Yeah. Well, I I yeah, I think that I agree with Patrick, one, that there are just too many plots, but I was hoping that the mix-em-up between the Japanese spy and the German spy was going to be longer played out because it's resolved really, really early and very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that there was going to be many, many more scenes of them trying to get alone with people who they thought were the real person Yeah. and, and having these misunderstandings throughout the movie. Yeah. Uh, but that's over and done with and and then 
it 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 takes away for me a little bit of the joke of the ticking clock is they have to figure this out yeah like um but there's too many people to figure it out uh when that when that's resolved then having this building full of people doesn't isn't a joke anymore right it's not funny it's not useful I mean, I guess that's why they eliminate all the Japanese tourists. It's like, let's just check that box off. Yeah. And, <laughs> just, <laughs> hey, it's anymore. a wrap on this elevator full of photographers, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. But, like, I, I didn't care enough about, like, the Duke-Duchess plot. Yeah, uh, and, and it's really lazily, like, put together. Like, the bow at the end is so sloppy that yeah. it's just, oh, my dad tried to kill your dad so i'm gonna kill you because he didn't kill your dad but that's not revenge that your dad failed to kill my dad so mm-hmm. you're gonna kill me that do- that's not what revenge means I-, I think it would have been funnier had chevy chase also been looking for the spies and and came to this hotel right yeah and was also like oh crap and he has to work with annie because it's like one of these people isn't who they think who isn't who we think we they are yeah and rollo could help because he's not actually a part of this group right like he is an outsider he's not like or maybe they suspect rollo because he's potentially because he, he just showed up conveniently yeah mm-hmm. I, I think there were so many opportunities that were missed yeah um and and it just gets needlessly dark with men on meat hooks and yeah. and, and aikido <laughs> getting poisoned is so sad yeah he didn't do anything to anybody he was just super happy and nice and he gave her all these rooms for people to stay in it made me sad. But you're right that there's nothing that's screwed up or logically wrong about the plot. And for this many stories to not have a massive plot hole is impressive. Yeah. Um, and, I, and for them to intersect in so many yeah, places. Yeah, the, the, the multiple points of intersection throughout the entire stories. I, I mean, I I was amused by the stories. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, there's a few moments where people aren't great actors, but th- nobody's terrible. I agree. Although I do think that um, Chevy had to step up and improvise a lot of his work because the script isn't great. Um, and you can tell that the, the little person actors were not professional actors in mm-hmm. a lot of places. But also um, it's shot kind of like a sitcom or like like television more. There's not a lot of like dynamic camera work where you're getting really interesting framing of things it's mm-hmm. it's, it's just straight on shots of people's faces or wider shots of multiple people talking and that's that's it i, f- yeah. I feel like they could have done more i mean it, it. it definitely could have been a much better movie it probably could have been shorter too i think uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's not don't do that <laughs> that's not what i meant <laughs> yeah i i mean i think that yeah, it, it 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 had more potential, and it's probably not something I ever really want to watch again. But I don't think it totally deserves a thumbs down. What are we doing, Letterboxd? Um, yeah, you know what? I have it really on the cusp of of those kinds of movies. Um, I have it at seventy nine out of one hundred and one. It is below Sob and above the Four Seasons. All right, Richard. Uh, I actually have it higher. I have it at sixty four. Um, below the Monster Club, but above Going Ape. Uh, I have it uh, just below you, actually. I have it in 69th, which is just under the Sea Wolves, but above Graduation Day. That's hilarious. I have it the lowest. That we both ranked it higher than you. Yeah, but also, 
Going Ape's hilarious. What's <laughs> wrong with you? <laughs> Wait, you hated Going Ape more than you hated this? Yeah. It's so oh, funny. Yeah. Oh my God, that was a great movie. <laughs> That's one of the best movies ever made. It's on Blu-ray now, by the way. We talked about how the the Tony Danza fan club was uh, petitioning for that Blu-ray and it, it actually exists now. So there if anybody go. wants to go check it out. <laughs> I can't tell if you guys are joking or- I'm sure it's serious. Criterion. I actually thought Going Ape was pretty funny. <laughs> No, I mean it's it's not it's not funny or good, but um, <laughs> I mean it's it is terrible, but it's a fun watch. But it made me sad to watch it, and it hurt physically. <laughs> but it's good. Watch it; it's great. Our director here was Steve Rash, not to be confused with Steve Tash from Ghostbusters. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, Mister. This was Rash's second directing gig after the Buddy Holly story starring Gary Busey. He later directs Can't Buy Me Love, Son-in-Law. Xenon Z3, the third film of the Xenon Girl of the 21st Century series, mm-hmm. and then a couple late Bring It On sequels, like late enough in the series that I'm not even in the background. <laughs> <laughs> story and writing came from Fred Bauer. This is his only writing credit, but he also produced the Buddy Holly story for Rash. Story writing credit for Pat Bradley. This was his only writing credit. Writer Pat McCormick plays Tiny in the film, and we'll come back to him later with more credits, but he was an actor in the film, and he wrote. Writer Harry Hurwitz, lots of writing and directing credits, but nothing I recognized. Writer Martin Smith, mostly writing, directing, and producing credits on war documentaries outside of this. Music came from Joe Renzetti. His first composer credit was on the Buddy Holly story. We've heard his work so far in Fatso and The Exterminator. Later this season, he's back with Dead and Buried, and later Vice Squad, Poltergeist 3, Child's Play, and Frankenhooker. And he has a soundtrack credit in Ghostbusters 4 because of its reuse of the Child's Play mm-hmm. theme. Yeah, I was looking. I was looking him up, and it was like Ghostbusters Afterlife. What? <laughs> Cinematographer Frank Stanley was a DP on Breezy, Magnum Force, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Corvette Summer, Holy Moses, and Ten. Editor David E. Blewett edited the Buddy Holly story last year. In God We Trust, the competition, which he won an Oscar or got an Oscar nomination for. Smokey and the Bandit 3, DC Cab, Ghostbusters, Psycho 3, and Moonwalker, specifically the Smooth Criminal sequence, where everyone's tilting in the bar. Speaking of Smooth Criminal, I mentioned it earlier. Did I? Annie, are you okay? Oh, yeah. Chevy Chase was Bruce Thorpe. He described this as one of the worst movies he's ever made, which I think he's said about multiple films that we've covered so far. And shows. Yeah. Chevy Chase got his start on Saturday Night Live and left to pursue a film career and found early success with films like Foul Play and Caddyshack and then continued failure with titles like Oh Heavenly Dog, Seems Like Old Times, and This. Later this year, we'll see him in Modern Problems and then he takes a break until his best work as Clark Griswold in the Vacation Films and Erwin Fletch in the Fletch Films. He also shows up in Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Funny Farm, Shit Sequels Fletch 2 and Caddyshack 2, He's Nick Calloway in John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and he's himself in Last Action Hero. One of his last great roles was as Dr. Farthing in Bob Saget's Dirty Work, starring Norm MacDonald. He found success as Pierce Hawthorne, racist, moist towelette tycoon on Community, but epic clashes with showrunner Dan Harmon forced his early departure from the series. Lately, he's had a string of roles as the best friend of a past-their-prime celebrity in films like The Last Movie with Burt Reynolds, The Last Laugh with Richard Dreyfuss, The Very Excellent Mr. Dundee with Paul Hogan. 
Chevy Chase met his future wife, Janie, who was working as a production assistant during the making of this film, and they are still married today. Carrie Fisher played Annie Clark. Fisher was a prolific ghostwriter, employed heavily in the 80s and 90s to fix scripts and punch up dialogue on most of your favorite films, but unfortunately the nature of that work is that it's largely nebulous and untracked outside the studio. She's Princess Leia. She's Jake's ex in Blues Brothers. She shows up later in The Man with One Red Shoe, Hannah and Her Sisters, Amazon Women on the Moon, The Burbs, When Harry Met Sally, Drop Dead Fred. She has a cameo in Hook. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Her, her and George Lucas. Yeah. She's Dr. Evil's therapist in Austin Powers. She's a nun in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. She made a hilarious appearance as Rosemary Howard on 30 Rock. <laughs> <laughs> You've come to kill me, haven't you? It's the 90s. <laughs> no, it's not. She had a recurring role on Family Guy, and she lost her lifelong struggle with drug addiction on December 27th of 2016 at the age of 60, and was followed less than 24 hours later by her mother, actress Debbie Reynolds. As a guest on Carson's Tonight Show, she also admitted this was one of the worst films of her career. What's the worst picture? The worst picture you ever in. It, usually for me, it's 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 when the experience of making it isn't right. so much fun. I didn't have that much make fun making Under the Rainbow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Eve Arden played the Duchess. She was Principal McGee in Grease and Grease 2. She's Ida Corwin and Mildred Pierce. Maida Rutledge in Anatomy of a Murder, but she's probably best known as the titular Miss Brooks from 130 episodes of Our Miss Brooks in the 50s. Joseph Mayer played the Duke. He was Sisk in the 78 Heaven Can Wait. He's Adams in Time After Time. Dr. Coulson in our first film, Just Tell Me What You Want. He's Phoebe Geyer in Those Lips, Those Eyes. Gridley in Going Ape. That's the guy who wants the apes to die, who works right, at, right. The, mm -hmm. at the office that would get all the money. He reunites with Chevy Chase for Funny Farm. He's a White House decorator in Mars Attacks. Robert Donner played the assassin. He was Deputy Colin in The Vanishing Point. He's a preacher in High Plains Drifter. He played Exeter on Mork and Mindy, and he played three characters across four episodes of MacGyver. Vince, partner of Vincent Schiavelli in Soft Touch, Ben Wintergreen, the theater owner in Cleo Rocks, and Milt Bozer in both of the Western MacGyver episodes, Serenity and MacGyver's Women. I was going to say, uh... The other two were def were Penny Parker episodes. Yep. Billy Barty played Otto Kriegling. He started as a child actor in Mickey Rooney's Mickey Maguire shorts of the 20s and 30s. He was a regular collaborator of Spike Jones with an S, not a Z, and of Sid and Marty Croft. He was Abe in Day of the Locust. He's Little Man in Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. J.J. McEwen in Foul Play. And after this, he's in Legend, Masters of the Universe, Willow, and UHF as Noodles McIntyre. Macintosh! At your service! In 1957, he founded the Little People of America, which provides support to individuals with dwarfism and their families. Mako played Nakamuri, or the Japanese spy. He played Hebert in Battle Creek Brawl last season. He was Enjiro in the Bushido Blade. Later this year, he's James Chan in An Eye for an Eye. He's the wizard slash narrator in Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. He's also the narrator of Dexter's Laboratory. He's Aku on Samurai Jack, and probably most famously, he's Uncle Iroh in Avatar The Last yeah. Airbender. Uh, I was discussing this film with my father, and he was asking who, who he might know in this film. I says, well, I mean, it's got, you know, Chevy Chase, Carrie Fisher, and I said, it's got Mako, and he's like, who? I said, Mako. It's like, he's, he's Mako who? He's like, no, that, that's, that's his name. That's the full name. name, yeah. That's his name. It's one word, and he, <laughs> he had a really hard time grasping yeah. that. I was like... 
No, his name is Marco. It's, it's like it's Cher. Like, it's like Cher. Who? <laughs> Madonna? <what>? Who? <laughs> Uh, Mako was also the voice of Splinter in the 2007 animated TMNT movie that was better than it had any right to be. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it in theaters and I was very impressed. Cork Hubbard played Rollo Sweet. He was the bellhop in Where the Buffalo Roam. He played Ta in Caveman. He was Brown Tom in Legend with Billy Barty and he was Luther on The Charmings, which is that sitcom about fairy tale characters living in the valley. Pat McCormick was Tiny. He's a longtime comedy writer for shows like I've Got a Secret, the Danny Kay Show, The Don Rickles Show, Get Smart, The Red Skelton Hour, and he actually has a screenplay credit on this. As an actor, we've seen him as Big Enos, father of Paul Williams' Little Enos, in the Smokey and the Bandit series. He was also himself in the Gong Show movie, a plumbing salesman in History of the World Part 1, and he's the ghost of Christmas present in the TV special Within Scrooged. Right, yeah, he's playing himself right. playing the ghost of Christmas present. Adam Arkin is Henry Hudson. He's back later this year as a high school student, Tony, <laughs> in Full Moon High. Sorry. <laughs> and as, yeah, he looks like he doesn't was, make any sense. He looks like he was 40 in this movie. Yeah. Well, wait till you see him in that. He's also Charlie in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash alongside his father, Alan Arkin, later this year. He was also Tony Parisio, one of the people on MacGyver's stress hike in MacGyver episode The Invisible Killer. My first thought for him is always a recurring character he played on the West Wing as the president's therapist. Richard Stahl played Lester Hudson, the manager of the hotel when his nephew's not around. He's a recording engineer in Five Easy Pieces, probably one of the people making fun of Lois Smith for singing while she's playing. Uh, he was Mead in 9 to 5, and he played a pharmacist in All Night Long. Peter Isaacson played Homer. He was Willie, the second in command at the hotel from Earthbound. And he's Beaker in Surf 2. Jack Crucian played Louie from the movie lot that was looking through the matte painting. He's Papa Papadopoulos on Webster. He's Red Meyer in Freebie and the Bean. Bennett Ota played Akito. He was the Hawaiian chief of police in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen earlier this season. He's Captain Ho in Missing in Action 2, The Beginning, and an herb shop clerk in The Golden Child. Gary Friedkin played Wedgie. He was Mash in Cool World. Michael Lee Gogan played Fitzgerald. He plays a uniformed dwarf in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think as a callback to Rollo's dwarf in yeah, Where the Buffalo Run. I think so, because they, they both play kind of very similar bell bellhop characters. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. And he's also Zanti in Critters. Louisa Moritz played the telephone operator. She was Myra in Death Race 2000, Rose in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Natalie Nussbaum in Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, Gloria in Up in Smoke, margie in loose shoes and we saw her last season as sally in new year's evil that's the one who's talking about all the programs she's been through like transcendental meditation and stuff mm -hmm. and then he puts a bag over her head and strangles her and throws her in a dumpster <laughs> the end <laughs> we'll see her next year as carmella in the last american virgin john pyle played steward i don't know who the steward was on he, the on the ship the ship because the, the duke and duchess are on is the it ship. the guy who stops them as they're going up the ramp uh, it's probably the guy who's closing the portholes. Oh, okay, maybe. Uh, he plays Mr. Harriman in Sucker Punch, the Zack Snyder movie. Very recent credit, but he only had like five credits, and there's a couple at the beginning of the 80s and then a couple in the late 2000s. Theodore Lehman played Hitler. He was a scientist in the Andromeda Strain. He plays a bum in Seed of Innocence, which gets a mini-sode later this year. Patty Maloney played Rosie. She's Lois Adams in the Adams Family movie. 
Zelda Rubenstein played Iris. She's back next season in Poltergeist and two later sequels. She's also the organist in 16 Candles and Madame Serena in Teen Witch. Weirdly, whenever I think about Zelda, I think about a role that was planned for her that didn't work out. In 1995's Casper, there's a sequence where the family employs three exorcists to clear their house of ghosts. The first is Weekend Update regular Father Guido Sarducci, whose head is twisted around backwards, Mm -hmm. so he leaves. Next is Ray Stance of the Ghostbusters, who is too intimidated by Casper and his friends. Who are you going to call? Someone else. But the third part of this joke was supposed to be Zelda Rubenstein going into the house and then being ejected from the chimney, shouting, go into the light. Uh, I want to bring up a credit of hers just because this movie is unbearable to watch and i've seen it like three times <laughs> oh what's that <laughs> national lampoon's last resort oof it's like one of the last movies the Corys did together it's a directed video i'm sure yeah, yeah it's but it's it's just a mess yeah that's too bad bobby porter played the ventriloquist he was cornelius in battle for the planet of the apes he's mini max the inspiration for mini me in the nude bomb he's the senator from rhode island in first family he played a clown in going ape the Purple People Eater in Purple People Eater, and Andy the Robot on Quark. Ruth Brown played the cleaning woman. She's Motormouth Maybell in Hairspray. Most of her credits are soundtrack credits because she is a celebrated singer-songwriter, granted a Lifetime Achievement Grammy in 2016. She's also the aunt of rapper Rakim. And she really deserves better than being in this movie, especially for the tiny scene that they gave her. Yeah. I'm glad that John Waters rectified that with an amazing role in Hairspray. Peter Woolley plays the studio lot director, which I think is the guy posing as Victor Fleming. He's a production designer on films like Blazing Saddles and High Anxiety, as well as the TV movie The Day After. Gary Wayne played studio lot actor, and that's obviously the Clark Gable character. Mm. He plays another Clark Gable in Malice in Wonderland four years later. Twink Kaplan played the cigarette girl. She played the 1940s Melina in Falling in Love Again last season. She was Marsha in Underground Aces. She's back as a bank customer later this season in something that I didn't write down. She's Rona in Look Who's Talking To and Miss Toby Geist in Clueless. Yeah, the Look Who's Talking To credit is the is the one I recognized yeah. her from. I was like, I, I've seen her before, but not anywhere else. Yeah, she's what? great. You don't recognize her from Clueless? Um, I don't know. The one know. that gets hooked up she's with- She's the teacher. Uh, with Wait, Wallace, uh, Sean. Wallace yeah, Sean. Wallace yeah. Sean, yeah. I, I, I must say that most of my like Clueless is like expunged from my memory. No. Uh, it's worth but a rewatch, I would it's say. The, it's no, actually pretty it's good. It's a good movie. John F. Goff is the bartender. He was a Nazi guard in Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. He's also Al Williams in The Fog, Ash in Alligator, and Uncle Bob in Tammy and the T-Rex. Beth Newfer played a prostitute or the prostitute, I guess, that they're keeping in the room. Uh, She played Elephant Girl in Going Ape. Denise Cheshire played Flying Monkey. She was Sally Prescott, which I think is the main character of Graduation Day, or one of the main characters of Graduation Day. Uh, Somehow I missed this before, but she was also in the snowman suit in Jack Frost that Michael Keaton is talking through. She's the (laughs) person in the snowman costume. So she's like a professional puppeteer? I guess. Or... Yeah, because, like, uh, Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah. Like, Cocoon. Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, she's like a... Yeah. She's like the frigging... Uh, what's his name? Gollum. Yeah. Andy Circus. Vic Hunsberger played the other flying monkey. He was a traffic cop in Charlie Chan earlier this season. Leonard Barr played Pops. 
He's Shady Tree in Diamonds Are Forever and yeah. Burlesque House Comedian in The Sting. He he is an actual comedian. Right, that's the next line. He He's also a comedian outside of film, uh, famous for his deadpan one-liners and also for being Dean Martin's uncle. Uh, this is his final film credit, and after his name at the end, it reads, Goodbye, Leonard, we will miss you very much. So I guess he passed away before the film hit theaters. Little Pat Billen, or Bylan, or Balan, played Self, Hotel Rainbow Guest. He has a credit as Special E.T. Movement in E.T. There's multiple people with this credit, so I think there were people that were walking around in E.T. suits. Mm -hmm. Tony Cox plays Hotel Rainbow Guest, but I think this is actually supposed to be the Otis character after he's in the elevator that falls. He's Bad William in Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. He's a desk clerk in Smokey Bites the Dust. He's Midget Nut in Nice Dreams, which is one of the people at the asylum where Cheech and Chong wake up in Nice Dreams. Mm. He's credited as a midget in Penitentiary 2. He's a street vandal in Blade Runner, and he's credited as Hooter in Captain EO. He's a dink in Spaceballs. He's the preacher who marries Beetlejuice to Lydia. Oh. He's a Vonkin warrior in Willow. He's Station in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He's an African-American leprechaun in Leprechaun 2, and he's Midget Man in Blank Man, but he's probably best known as the biological father of Jim Carrey's kids in Me, Myself, and Irene, or as Marcus the Elf to Billy Bob Thornton's Bad Santa. Louis DeJesus played Hotel Guest. He's Ralphus in Bloodsucking Freaks, and he's an Ewok. There's going to be a lot of Ewoks moving forward. Yeah. Phil Fondacario was an Ewok. He was a munchkin on Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater. He was Malcolm Mallory and Torok the Troll in Troll. He's a drone in Invaders from Mars, Sir Nigel Pennyweight in Ghoulies 2, Greaser Greg in the Garbage Pail Kids, but I mostly recognize him as being another Vonkar warrior in Willow. I think he's the one making fun of Mad Mardigan in the cage. Yeah. Saul Fondacaro played Hotel Rainbow Guest. There's a hundred and something people with that credit. Munchkin, two years later on Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater and a drone in Invaders from Mars again. Daniel Frischman, another hotel guest, was Falcon in Lone Wolf McQuaid, Clarence in Lust in the Dust, and Alien Zombie in Night of the Creeps. Uh, I wanted a quick touch back on the Invaders from Mars. Yes, because uh, I don't. I think I've. I don't think I've seen. I think I've shown you the guys behind the scenes. You showed us just the bit about the quicksand. Swirling. Okay, so there's these alien creatures, and Stan Winston was trying to figure out how to how to make these creatures move and walk unusually. Yeah. So they have two actors. One a full-sized stuntman with a little person stunt performer on their back upside down. Weird. And and the 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 full-sized stuntman would walk on all fours with back legs and then front hands on stilts. Yeah. And the little person was upside down on their back, making the mouth and other movements inside. They have like there's behind-the-scenes photos of this rig. Were that they had to build in order to have these two people inside the suit at the same Weird. time. That reminds me of how Silent Running, I think it was, used double amputees that were walking on their hands mm, to mm-hmm. puppeteer the robots. Yeah, yeah. Because it was such a an unnatural motion that you wouldn't recognize it as being puppeteered by people. Joe Gieb played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was Misquamakas in The Manitou and Blob Operator in Weird Science. Does that mean when they turn Chet into yeah, a blob at the end. Blob, yeah. yeah, So it's one of the people operating <laughs> that costume because someone else has that credit too. Jerry Marin was a Hotel Rainbow guest. He's a townsperson in The Terror of Tiny Town. 
the all-little-person western. He plays a child ape in the original Planet of the Apes. He's the Hamburglar in some McDonald Land commercials. He's a bellman in Where the Buffalo Roam, and he's a dink in Spaceballs. Most importantly, he's a member of the Lollipop Guild in the 1939 The Wizard of Oz. He's one of the guys who actually sings. We represent the Lollipop Guild. He later regretted appearing in this film, finding it in poor taste and not resembling the actual making of The Wizard of Oz in any way. He only just passed away in 2018 at the hmm. age of at the age of 98. Wow. He must have been really young in like Yeah, he was a kid. He I was definitely do, I could do the math. <laughs> young child. John Edward Allen played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was Billy T in The Eyes of Laura Mars and Kaiser in Blood Runner, Blood Runner, and Kaiser in Blade Runner. Ray Armstrong played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was an Ewok. Roger Arroyo played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was Cousin It in a couple episodes of The Addams Family. He's a midget in Going Ape, presumably in the circus funeral at the start of the film. Lori Barty played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She is the daughter of Billy Barty. Makes sense. Patty Bell played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was an Ewok. Bobby Bell played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was an Ewok. He was Foul Phil in The Garbage Pail Kids. He's one of the Emperor Penguins in Batman Returns, and he's Bob in Cool World. Debbie Lee Carrington was Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was Romba Ewok. She's a drone in Invaders from Mars. Mm -hmm. She's Additional Ducks in Howard the Duck. <laughs> She's Idi in Captain EO. She's Little Bigfoot in Harry and the Hendersons and Valerie Vomit in The Garbage Pail Kids, but I'd say she's most recognized as Thumbelina Hell in Total yeah. Recall. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, that's the best. She's also one of the Emperor Penguins in Batman Returns. Michael Crispo played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was Grimace in the McDonald Land commercials. Jean D'Agostino played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was an Ewok. Marsha DeRoss played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was Kathleen in Tiptoes and Dr. Ludwig in True Blood. Debbie Dixon played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was an Ewok. Ruth Duccini played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was in the Munchkin Village in The Wizard of Oz also. So her and Jerry Marin both are coming back from the original film. Margarita Farrell played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was a stand-in in The Hand, probably for Michael Caine's daughter. And she did special E.T. movement in E.T. She was also a stunt duck in Howard the Duck. And an Ewok, a Nelwyn villager in Willow. And another Emperor Penguin in Batman Returns. Michael Gildon plays Hotel Rainbow Guest. He's the Philip Morris page in Pulp Fiction. That's the guy dressed as the bellboy character at Jackrabbit Slims. Okay. Um, who says Page Philip Morris when he's walking away from them. Edwina Gleason plays Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was an Ewok. Lydia Green plays Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was an Ewok. Pam Grizz plays Hotel Rainbow Guest. She was an Ewok in Return of the Jedi, and then Shodu, a specifically named Ewok in the TV movies. J.J. Jackson plays Hotel Rainbow Guest, Ewok. Karen Lay, Ewok. Nancy McLean, Hotel Rainbow Guest, Ewok, and Special Movement for E.T. Carol Morris was an Ewok. Stacey Nichols was an Ewok. Chris Nunn was an Ewok. Brian Orenstein was an Ewok. Harold Parker Jr. was an Ewok. Vicky Petit plays a concert guest in Blues Brothers. She's also credited as Baby Bigfoot in Harry and the Hendersons, and she appeared as a contestant in two episodes of Deal or No Deal. Ah. Norma Pratt played Mrs. Haskell in The Toxic Avenger. 
Rob Purcell, Hotel Rainbow guest, was Crack Rider from The Man from Snowy River and its sequel. Jerry Riley played a Hotel Rainbow guest. He doubled for Ricky Schroeder in The Champ. Daniel Rogers played a Hotel Rainbow guest. He was an Ewok and a little druid around Tiny Stonehenge in This Is Spinal Tap. He's also the troll in Cat's Eye. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you still got to see that one, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Matthew Roloff played Hotel Rainbow guest. He was the Ewok with crutches. Finally, an identifiable Ewok. <laughs> He's also the father on TLC's reality series, Little People Big World, which he executive produces. Chris Romano plays Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was an Ewok and another little druid. George Rosito played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He played another munchkin two years later on Shelley Duvall's Fairytale Theater. Susan Rosito played Hotel Rainbow Guest. She's Messy Tessie in the Garbage Pail Kids movie. She played an alien on Married with Children. She was another Emperor Penguin in Batman Returns, and she has stunt credits on Leprechaun, likely doubling fellow Ewok Warwick Davis. You know what's weird is that uh, I don't see Anthony Rosito in here. I'm assuming these Rositos are relatives of his, but he's not in this one for some reason. Mm. But we've had Anthony Rosito in other movies. He was in our Dracula vs. Frankenstein review. He's the ticket taker guy, and he's also in Willow. Charles Secor played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was General Kuzan on Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Felix Silla, or Sia, played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was the regular cousin It on the original Adams Family. He was also a child gorilla in the first Planet of the Apes. He's an Ewok and a Dink. Kevin Thompson played Hotel Rainbow Guest. He was Bear in Blade Runner. He's an Ewok. He's another blob operator from Weird Science. He played Ali Gator in The Garbage Pail Kids. He's credited as Little Man in Always Sunny episode Charlie Catches a Leprechaun, which is a... March 17th episode where they're having a party and Charlie's been drinking paint for the entire episode (laughs) and he thinks he's caught a leprechaun in the basement with his glue traps that he made from baking tins but he actually (laughs) caught a pickpocketer who's been stealing everybody's wallets and is a dwarf and then they just leave him on the side of the road at the end of the day because they can't let him tell everyone what they did to him. (laughs) but it's funny too because at the end of the episode they imply that he kind of is a leprechaun because they leave him on the side of the road and they drive away and charlie's the only person looking out the back window but he's been drinking paint all day right and he sees the leprechaun just shoot up into the sky (laughs) (laughs) oh shit that leprechaun just flew up a rainbow stop drinking paint charlie kendra wall played hotel rainbow guest she was an ewok butch wilhelm was an ewok Robert Kim played a tourist. He was Detective Stephen Lim in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Rob Narita played a tourist. He was Joel Dung Poe on Max Headroom. And the last tourist credit I have here is for someone named Peter Pan, (laughs) who was a Chinese landlord in Death Wish 2. Those are all the credits I have for this one. Sorry, guys. Sorry, it couldn't be way more. Well, I mean, it's just, it's it's literally a cast of hundreds. Yeah. Um, And uh, everyone's credited. Yeah, exactly. As it should be. I think that's everything we have for Under the Rainbow. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Victory a.k.a. Escape to Victory, which IMDb describes like so, as allied POWs prepare for a soccer game against the German national team to be played in Nazi-occupied Paris, the French resistance and British officers are making plans for the team's escape. We leave you now 
with a trailer for Victory, a.k.a. Escape to Victory. How long will it take? Well, you must realize it's my busy time. Everybody wants to escape in the good weather. In 1942, the Nazis thought they were sitting on top of the world, never suspecting that they could be toppled in one conflict, the most unusual battle of the war. It has been decided that a German national team will play a combined team from the prisoners of war of the occupied territories. That's crazy. Okay, I'm ready to sign up. Sign up, eh? And you ought to be exhibited in Paris like performing fleas. What about me? Get out A stacked game. The Third Reich's finest against a ragged bunch of prisoners of war. The Germans thought they had it made. They couldn't run about for 90 minutes, they'd be chucking their guts up. Am I good? Or am I good? What's your name? You know my name. What's your name? I decided to join the team. The American? No. You use that bloody American style again here and you'll be fired. Look, you're playing every play American. Can you do it with your mouth shut? Hey, the mouth and the hands work together. It's a team. This match is a propaganda stunt for the Germans. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. The Allied High Command called them crazy, and maybe they were. We want you to contact the resistance for us and arrange the escape of the football team. But I want to thank you all for your concern, but I'm really not planning on seeing Paris until after the war. Well, I'm uh, an orphan. I have no parents, no money. I'm not married. I don't even have a pet. And anything I might say in my sleep to the contrary can't be held against me. We don't want to be shot as a spy, do we? No. I don't want to be shot as anything. Victory. Starring Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, Max von Sydow, and introducing Pele. How'd you like to play football against the Germans? Why not? is the time for heroes. Victory. You've never seen anything like it. So, do you ever struggle thinking that you may have seen all of the good movies out there? Well, let me help you with that. I'm Wyndham Jennings, host of Celluloid Fever Dreams, and every week I take a deep dive into cinematic history, and I find the hidden gems, the overlooked and underappreciated films, the ones that got overshadowed by bigger releases, And I watch them, and then I tell you about them, share some interesting stories about their productions, and tell you where you've seen these people before and where you can find them again. And then I answer the most important question of all. Is it entertaining? So if you're on the lookout for something you hadn't seen before, join me every Thursday on Anchor, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and, well, a bunch of other podcast apps for Celluloid Fever Dreams. Who knows? That film that you haven't heard of? just may turn out to be your new favorite. Celluloid Fever Dreams, every Thursday. I'll save you a seat.